you're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this sermon is influenced by a sermon preached by Reagan Hunter, the pastor of House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver. Today's gospel passage is often referred to as the story of the rich young ruler. It's not a title you can easily infer from our reading from Mark, but the story also appears in the Gospel of Matthew, where the man is described as young, and in Luke, where he's described as a ruler. So this man runs up to Jesus, falls on his knees, and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's basically asking Jesus to lay out a roadmap for eternal life. And Jesus' response has a bit of an edge to it. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. If I was this rich young ruler, I'd be instantly confused. I might even mumble an answer like, um, because you are good, and because that's just a thing we say in this culture as a sign of respect. But Jesus doesn't actually give him a chance to answer. Rather, he continues with a short list of commandments. He doesn't even list them all. And the rich young ruler quickly dismisses the list, saying, yes, yes, I'm doing all of that. What else do I need to do? Jesus is trying to give this man good news. He is trying to say that this man already knows the way. He doesn't have to do anything to inherit eternal life. It's already his. Jesus is saying, don't worry, you're in good shape. But the man doesn't believe him. Surely it's impossible. He can't possibly be doing enough already. Surely he needs to do more. And Jesus, we're told, looks at the man and loves him. I love those details. Jesus knows and loves this man. He is looking at him, paying attention to him, and it is out of that love and that knowing that Jesus speaks the words the man most needs to hear. Jesus says, you lack one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Jesus looks at a man who seemingly has it all. He is rich, young, in a position of power, and he says, you lack one thing. He doesn't say, you have too much, get rid of your stuff. Rather, he says, there's something you're missing. This isn't about subtraction, it's about addition. So what does the man lack? I think what he lacks is the imagination to believe that another way is possible. The imagination that would lead him to suspect that the way he has been taught to think since birth might not be the only way to think. He wants solutions, actions and reasoning that he can understand, and if the truth doesn't fit into that paradigm, he can't recognize it as truth. Eternal life is a free gift. There's nothing more I need to do. I'm fine just as I am. It's unimaginable. It's impossible. There must be a catch, and the rich young ruler wants Jesus to show it to him. Sometimes we can become so locked in our old way of thinking that we can't even imagine a new way is possible. There can be a solution staring us straight in the face. Jesus could be standing right in front of us telling us that a different, better way is possible, and we won't be able to see him because we are blinded by our old behaviors and past experiences. 
But throughout the gospel, Jesus lays out that eternal life isn't built on our effort, on our work, or on our deservedness. The way to eternal life is built upon God's grace as a gift, which has nothing to do with our own goodness. But the man in the gospel can't see this because he is blinded by a system of transactional relationships based upon effort and reward. My first spiritual director loved to tell stories, and he had some great pithy lines that I'll never forget. He once told me the story of a man who was very much like the rich young ruler in our story, and when he described the man, he said, you know, he was one of those guys who was earnestly trying to put Jesus out of a job. And in case it's not obvious, um, he told me that story for a reason. He told me that story because he could see that I was one of those gals who was earnestly trying to put Jesus out of a job. And I still am sometimes, but I'm working hard to learn to ask the question, what is actually mine to do? I have a role to play to be sure, but so does Jesus. I need to do my work and trust that Jesus will do his. But the rich young ruler can't imagine a life like that, at least not in the portion of the story recorded in Mark. He is so stuck in his old way of thinking that Jesus' words are shocking to him, and Mark tells us that he leaves and he goes away grieving. And grief is a deep and active and painful emotion, but grief can also be healing. It's possible that this man will, after the grief grief subsides, be willing to have his imagination expanded by Jesus' words and do exactly what Jesus had counseled him to do. But we don't get to hear the rest of his story. And by walking away when he does, this young man misses out on the next few things Jesus says. After the young man leaves, Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. People have been trying to figure out what Jesus meant by that since the moment he said it. A fairly well-known interpretation goes something like this. In Jesus' time, there was a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. And for whatever reason, the people who built this gate built it in such a way that it was too small for a camel to walk through. And for whatever reason, they also failed to build a second camel-accessible gate. In order for a camel to go through this gate, you would have to remove all the cargo the camel was carrying, and then the camel would have to sink down to the ground and crawl through the gate. But here's the thing. There is no evidence anywhere in the Mideast that such a gate ever existed. None. There's no evidence to suggest that a gate called the Eye of the Needle ever existed. Well, you might say, we haven't found any evidence that this gate existed, but that doesn't mean it didn't exist in Jesus' time. And fair enough, except we still have camels, and camels don't crawl. (laughs) Jesus is not making a literal reference to a literal place. He's using a form of hyperbole that was common in Semitic speech. But why, then, did the understanding that there was a literal gate with literal crawling camels become so popular? I believe it's because we're more comfortable with that interpretation. It's more comfortable to believe that if we try hard enough, we can enter through the gate than to believe that it is impossible for us without God. On one hand, people, especially wealthy people, don't want to believe that it's impossible to enter the kingdom of heaven. This crawling camel interpretation provides them with a convenient workaround. It allows them to believe that what Jesus is saying is that it may be hard for a rich person to enter God's kingdom, but it's not impossible. 
But it's not only rich people, a category that as North Americans we basically all fall into, by the way. It's not only rich people like us who have a hard time with the story. The church has always had a really hard time hearing that eternal life is a gift. That this literal gate, literal camel interpretation is a way of trying to erase God's grace from the story. And while this story is our focus today, it's certainly not the only time we have been tempted to erase grace from God's story. We reject grace because we prefer a story that says if we work hard enough, we can earn salvation. If we, like that mythical camel, remove all our baggage, humble ourselves, drop down to our knees and crawl, then we can enter God's kingdom. If we do that slow, hard, painstaking work, then we will be allowed to enter heaven on our own steam. That's a story most of us can probably wrap our minds around. That's a story most of us can probably be comfortable with. And that is a story that completely eliminates God's grace. We're uncomfortable with any idea that suggests that we're not in control of our own destinies. We're uncomfortable with any idea that challenges the negative transactional tapes in our heads that say we have to do something in order to get something. We're uncomfortable with the Jesus who says not, come to me all you who are weary and heavy burdened and I'll run you through an intensive salvation boot camp, but rather says, come to me all you are who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. The rich young ruler hears Jesus' command to sell all he has and come follow Christ, and he walks away grieving. As I said earlier, by leaving when he does, the young man missed the good news that Jesus shares with the disciples. He misses hearing Jesus say that it's impossible for a person by the sheer force of their own will to enter God's kingdom, but nothing is ever impossible for God. Eternal life is God's job, not ours. There are so many things that are impossible for us to do on our own, but it is never impossible for God. Stuck in his old way of thinking, the rich young man leaves before hearing the good news. Where do you as an individual get stuck? Where do we as a community get stuck? Where do we all need to stretch our imaginations? This past week, Jamie, Danielle, and I went to Collegeville for the first session of the Communities of Calling initiative that our church will be part of for the next five years. Jamie and I also returned home to dive straight into three days of diocesan synod, so we really haven't had time to unpack all that we heard and experienced in Collegeville just yet, but you will continue to hear more as the project unfolds. What I can tell you is that a major component of this project is an invitation for us, for all of us, to expand our imaginations and think creatively about vocation and faith and what it means to be a church. I'm excited for all of us to have the opportunity to discover the places where we may have fallen into crawling camel thinking and to begin to live into the grace-filled thinking of God. I'm excited for what will happen when we allow ourselves to be stretched and challenged and inspired by the other participants in this project and by each other. And although I can't imagine what will happen as a result of this project, I do know about some of the beautiful things we have been able to do as a community when we were bold enough to stretch our imaginations. And those stories give me confidence to risk stretching my imagination again. For example, as a small church with a tight budget, it would be easy for us to believe that we cannot afford to be generous, prudent even. 
It's unlikely that anyone would criticize us for saying that we need every single penny that arrives in those baskets at the back of church each Sunday just to keep the basics of our ministry running. I mean, who's going to argue with that? Not me, that's for sure. And yet, in the past 11 years that I have been part of this community, I have watched people with bigger imaginations than mine utterly reject that sort of scarcity mentality and say, God is a God of abundance, and God calls us to live lives of extravagant generosity. These people in our community called us to imagine a more generous way of being church. They said, do we really believe that we can do more with 100% of our budget than God can do with 90%? And it captured our imaginations, and over the years we gradually grew our budget for missions until it was 10% of our overall budget. And that's why, in November, our Missions Fund Committee will have the extreme privilege of reviewing your submissions and dispersing those funds to people who are doing good work outside the walls of this church. I stand here before you today saying this is an amazing and beautiful thing that we do together that several years ago I was utterly convinced was impossible. If it had been up to me, I, like the rich young ruler, would have walked away from this idea with sadness in my heart and a conviction that it was simply impossible. But nothing is impossible with God. At the end of our service, we regularly say a prayer that includes the beautiful lines, Glory to God, whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. What could happen if we really leaned into that truth? What could happen if we all began to ask and imagine? I can't imagine all the possibilities, but I do know that nothing, nothing is impossible with God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.